Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan, who has a new handicap this week. Uh, no, not the water on the knee. Uh, no, not the injury known as remote control wrist. This week, it's far worse. John took a trip out of town and lost his cell phone. No cell phone. Two days in the wilds of Boston. John, how did you survive? Uh, Eric, Eric. Um, <laughs> so one mile from Newark Airport on Monday, I'm driving, and my car suddenly starts beeping. You know, that weird little yellow light comes on the dashboard, the one you might get if you be on black ice or something in the winter. But it's 50 degrees in the rain. Um, is this a warning of potential hydroplaning? Uh, seems like a stretch, but uh, there's no turning back now. Uh, it could be low tire pressure. Um, maybe a flat is imminent. The, there's a, like a loud beeping sound that really kind of threw me off that I, I just hadn't uh, heard before ever. So, but I got to catch a flight, right? So, um, then I, I possibly angered the gods by using the handicap stall, the Newark airport restroom. Ooh, but okay. I mean, I have severe osteoarthritis. They tell me, and it's just for a minute or two. I mean, it's not like I'm one of the Seinfeld characters of my selfishness, I don't <laughs> think, but, <laughs> but as I prepare to leave, I notice my phone resting on a little ledge and don't forget. I tell myself and about three minutes later, uh, crap, I tell myself, uh, and I go back and the dude is in there and he claims there's no phone and I'm screwed. Wow. Um, I didn't realize how screwed I was right away. And just before takeoff, there's news of a one-hour, one eight-minute delay out of nowhere. Uh, everyone around me scrambles to their phones, and I um, I read the first half of the United Airlines uh, magazine's mini-profile of Bill Gates' wife, Melinda, in her efforts to empower women around the world. Um, you know, nice is my first thought, and did I pack anything sharp is my second thought. But uh, So I open my laptop, <laughs> which is out of juice, of course. Of course. And... I finished the Gates profile, and hopefully this is going to be one of our three topics this week. Um, then I read it again, searching for in vain for typos, but no no luck there. So I'm in Boston that night. It's virtually impossible to contact my teammate, Matt Ribotowski. Um We make it work somehow and find each other at the Fenway Park Bar for the pregame. 
But everyone else walks out later waiting for an Uber or Lyft. Um, <laughs> cell phoneless. Believe it or not, I do have a Lyft app on my phone. Oh, okay. That's, a, that's, phone. A, that's an upset there. I wouldn't have I yeah, wouldn't exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I figured you'd be surprised by that. But So I wandered around in the rain for a half hour following bad directions by various locals in search of a cab. It was uh, kind of pathetic. But um, So then there's very little laptop reception for this Ice North America event in the Boston Convention Center, too. Um, of course, everyone's smartphone seems to work. And so who cares? Otherwise, seems to be the theme. Hard to argue admits the cell phoneless guy. <laughs> so, so 48 hours of frustration later, I settled down early at Boston's Logan Airport for the return flight at a nice-looking steakhouse at Terminal B. Um, I think from the word terminal, maybe I should have seen something coming, but um, Goose Island IPA? Sorry, sir, we're out of that. Okay, what do you have? Bud Light. That's the entire beer list. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, oh well, there, there goes our Bud Light sponsorship. Yeah, I was just think I should have been thinking about that. I said, well, we can always cut this. Um, <laughs> as the, the place is one hour shy of closing for two months, really, in an in an airport terminal, uh, bizarre. Uh, you know what else is the first to go in a restaurant is well, terminal um, chicken. Apparently, that was my first food choice. No mm. chicken left. Um, I panicked and went with the Bud Light and the salmon. By the way, um, <laughs> so so halfway through, I realized, did I just order the last piece of salmon this place ever sells? Is that likely their best piece of salmon they had? Um, I'm too hungry to care at this point. Uh, meanwhile, the other restaurant, this is near Gate 30, Terminal B in Boston, by the way. It's also closed for renovations or something. So at dinner time on a Wednesday, it's last call for food and nearly so for alcohol. It's kind of strange. Um, but having arrived early, I took a long uh, walk past the security line to the other side of Terminal B. And the legal seafood spot looks at this point like an oasis. And it mm. is mobbed, as you can imagine. I told the bartender, if you're smart, just have one of those air- airport golf carts waiting outside the steakhouse and show the distraught would-be customers a menu of food and grog. Look, I'm storming behind that the parting cart as you head back to legal seafood uh wait i realize this could turn into a game of thrones episode wouldn't it so uh <laughs> just leave those doom souls to themselves anyway so i get to my car last night uh to round the circle finally and that damn squiggly line is still lit when i turn the car on but there, i've got four round tires as far as i can tell and i made it home uh, almost bloodied and just still partly bowed. Apparently, the gods had figured I'd, I'd suffered enough. <laughs> wow! I, I ask about a cell phone, and I get a, yeah, I get well, a, well. The cell phone was included in the story, at least. But so you're yeah. you're still cell phoneless, and uh, we'll, we'll need to uh, we'll need to buy a new one, I guess. Huh? Uh, well, I have an old one. Uh, I actually have an iPhone four. It would be funny if I could repurpose that, but probably not. <laughs> uh, but I have another one, like uh, from a year and a half ago. I'm hoping to uh, convert. But um, yeah, that was just my rant. Well, I, it was an enjoyable rant for me, uh, and uh, I'm glad you were able to uh you know get get it out there a little bit hopefully it was somewhat cathartic to uh, to tell the the story cool. but but uh, the, i i would have to say that i feel like the part i would fear the most about being in a at a convention without your cell phone is you know what what do you do when you're uh, standing in an elevator with other people and you don't want to have to make conversation and you don't have your phone to pull out and pretend to be looking through it uh, that's that's my nightmare is having to talk to strangers in an elevator because I don't have the excuse that oh I'm playing on myself yeah I I live in an elevator building in a condo so um, I'm used to this uh, nightmare every day so I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I cope with it yeah <laughs> okay. Wow, uh, I'm I'm glad you made it back uh, in uh, in one piece, even if uh, even if you're uh, a bit battered. Uh, you're you're here. I'm I'm glad you made it for the podcast, and I'm glad all of our listeners are here joining us for episode number forty of Gamble On, the Big Four O. If you missed any of our previous thirty nine episodes. They're all available on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Click the subscribe button so every episode appears magically on your listening device. Uh, The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and subscribing is the straight line from our podcast recordings 
to your ear canals. And they're coming up later in the show. We're going to be joined by renowned sports and gaming attorney Daniel Wallach. Um, he was with me at this ICE conference in Boston this week, where he served as he so often does as an expert panelist. Um, Dan will be joining us to talk about his career, the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court historic ruling on PASPA, and the future of the sports betting industry. Uh, first, it's been another busy news week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. And I assume Melinda Gates is topic one, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. Okay. Right, right after this musical bumper, you'll find out uh, what topic one is. Okay. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Last week on the podcast, we covered the major deal between Fox and the Stars Group. And this week, we have another massive story to discuss that concerns a major mainstream media outlet deepening its connection to the gambling industry. On Tuesday, as part of a pretty big one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court decision news dump, ESPN announced a new partnership with Caesars. Elements of this deal include Caesars providing the sports betting odds for ESPN content, such as the show Daily Wager, and ESPN building a Las Vegas studio at Caesars Link Hotel and Casino. And that latter detail is huge. ESPN is establishing a serious physical presence in Las Vegas. If that's not a sign of how the times have changed and the mainstream media is embracing gambling after decades of tiptoeing around it, I don't know what is. Uh, John, weigh in on this partnership and uh, and tell me, long term, which do you think is more impactful, Fox and the Stars Group or ESPN and Caesars? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Eric, I may be showing my age, but ESPN deals, that that deal intrigues me a little bit more. Um, I, now, I wonder if Dodgeball will be kicked off uh, ESPN Ocho in favor of an all-betting screen show that kind of <laughs> makes CNBC's bells and whistles look uh, tame. I can picture that. But uh, <laughs> colleague Brian Pempis notes that the new convention center behind the link may well become the new home of the World Series of Poker. Right. That would set up a nice synergy with ESPN and Caesars. So, and, of course, Caesars is the new official partner of the suddenly frisky NFL. So, uh, But Stars Group and Fox launching that free-to-play sports betting app for lagging states and a real-money version for the rest of us, uh, that's also huge, obviously. Um, I see Fox, uh, their stock soared about 20% in after-hours trading uh, on that announcement. So uh, overall, it's just a great time to be alive and in the U.S. legal sports betting space, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a good point about the World Series of Poker thing and the synergy there. Um, I, I would still say that, that Fox is the bigger deal for now uh, because of exactly what you said, that they're going to have a Fox-branded betting app and website. But hypothetically, if ESPN ends up going down that same road, like if there's an ESPN bet app and an ESPN sports book at the link, uh, I think uh, then it's time to move to the back of the line Fox. Uh, you know, I have no idea if that's what they're planning, but it certainly seems possible. And, and if so, that becomes the biggest story in the sports world, not just the sports betting world, you know, ESPN bet or, or whatever they would call it. That doesn't get topped until Facebook or Amazon starts taking bets. Uh, but I suppose I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, projecting. No, I, I don't think you're that far ahead. You know, And it's funny, this is the second event in a month that I've been to where uh, the majority of the uh, visitors are European uh, here in the U.S. And you know, they're so far ahead of this, especially in the United Kingdom, You know, a, a decade ahead. And so all these things are taken as a given. You know, The idea, oh, would ESPN really get in that deep? I mean, to them, it's, it seems preposterous. I mean, of course they will. So right. um, uh, I, I think they're right. So so it's a good context to have being around them. Yeah. And just a quick separate note, uh, Vegas is turning into a legit sports town, a hockey team, soon a football team, soon ESPN has a studio there. The NFL draft is coming there next year. This isn't your grandfather's Las Vegas. Yeah, that, that doesn't shock me either. Um, right. It is funny, though, that I think 
that New Jersey legal saga with sports betting took so long that really in the beginning, the leagues were against this, I think, in 2012. Um, and by the end of it, they I think they were more than uh, consoled by the supposed loss in court because they didn't take too long to uh, to embrace this stuff. In fact, obviously, some of it got started before the suit ended with the, the Golden Knights and all. So, right. yeah, Las Vegas was bound to uh, too big to fail, I guess. And uh, here we are. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue into our second story of the the leagues uh, embracing this. Um, uh, as uh, you know, if you paid attention to the first few minutes of the show, John spent part of his week in Boston at the Ice North America Conference because, yeah, you know, John hadn't been to a gaming conference in at least about four days. Uh, there were a lot of interesting topics discussed there, but the one that we want to focus on here is the one you wrote about for U.S. Bets on the opening day of the conference, the NFL finally becoming part of the public conversation about sports betting. Maybe this really started the week before when the NFL shared its stance in a letter to a New York Senate committee, uh, but it, it picked up in Boston with the NFL's chief strategy officer, Christopher Halpin, and New England Patriots executive Jonathan Kraft, both speaking. Halpin made a push for the use of official data. Kraft said that sports betting is good for engaging a younger audience, uh, which I interpret to a degree as him meaning an audience that needs to be looking at two or three screens at once. Uh, the NFL isn't really saying anything groundbreaking so far, but at least the league is saying something after mostly kind of sitting back and watching until now. John, what's the potential impact of this and what other topics from your week in Boston stood out? Yeah, I, I just think the NFL figuring out a game plan, such as saying no push for integrity fees more forcefully than they have before, uh, is interesting. And it's just a positive for the industry. And, you know, as I wrote, the uh, even the official data part, they they didn't their their pitch right now is not aggressively, you know, make sure that legislature is mandated or, you know, we're going to be so angry if somebody doesn't buy it or whatever. You know, they, they took a positive spin on it and kind of said, we know for a fact that our data is so good that um, – Anybody who doesn't buy it is going to be left behind. And, you know, as I wrote, if they're, if they're that good, then then that solves itself. Everybody will buy it and, and all that. So I think somebody up high finally figured out that they had laid low for a little too long on this. And now they're in the conversation. So I, I like that. Uh, another thing that stood out for me was executives from NFL, NBA and MLB were all stressing that however future sports coverage on TV plays out, the traditional programming, either with no or very little talk of odds and spreads, that's not going away. I mean, either they've been following my mantra on this or Okay, they have not been doing that, though. <laughs> um, so then my hunch was just sound that just offer extra broadcasts. You know, the suggestion, by the way, were not just gambling obsessed channels, but a middle ground channel as well. That since that middle also is a strong audience where um, you don't have that taboo on, oh my God, don't mention there's a point spread angle in the fourth quarter of this game, um, but at the same time not have, you know, like I said, the screen just lit up with, uh, you know, prop bets and such. So um, I think there's room in the, in the, in the very near future for, uh, many multiple channels. That was good. Um, finally, I witnessed some pretty intense networking going on among countless of those Europeans at the Monday night pregame event at Fenway Park for this two-day conference, and, and rightly so. Uh, these are the moments that separate captains of industry from corporals, and uh, there's gold in these U.S. Uh, sports betting hills, and uh, this group recognizes it clearly. Yeah. Um, it, it has occurred to me over these last uh, several weeks of podcasting that there is no word I'm more inconsistent in my pronunciation of than data slash data. I, I've gone back and forth, I think, my whole life, and I have no idea if one is right or both are right, but uh, but I, I should probably settle on one. Um, so uh, I, 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 I noticed I, you I lean noticed data. 
thought it was charming the way you did it. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks. You, you make it work. <laughs> I guess so. I think in the movie Goonies, they call the character Data. Uh, so yeah. maybe that's influencing me. Uh, but uh, th- that official Data or Data, that 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 detail um, that, that you mentioned is, is really interesting and in that the NFL seems to be saying – we're going to provide data you can't get as quickly and comprehensively anywhere else. So it'll be worth paying for. I I like that approach that, you know, you'll want to pay for our product other over the other approach we've seen pay for this data or else. Um, So, uh, you know, DraftKings is Jason Robbins uh, from, uh, from your article. It seemed uh, he was, he was hammering that point home. Uh, Really makes sense to me. Well, it's the first time we're hearing that the NFL sort of spent last season sounds like a, a beta mode, you know, it's, uh, sort of testing it out in real in real time live. And I think it gets offshore books as well as the uh, new books say in New Jersey. And uh, they seem very confident. I mean, uh, you know, if they're bluffing, it's a it's a gaming conference after all. But but I, I don't I don't think they were. I think they they feel like when they show this stuff uh, this summer to uh, to the various potential partners, they're going to say, yeah, wow, we got to have this um, because yeah, if you're going to raise your uh, um, your your handle by twelve percent or something because of the the ease and the quality of the of the in game bets, then you would pay for that something for that. So if the NFL is is looking to get a a reasonable cut, I think uh, everybody wins. You said beta mode. Is it beta or bata? Just kidding, just <laughs> it's <kidding>. beta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, time for our final story this week. And no, uh, the third story is not Iowa officially legalizing sports betting. Uh, There's just not much new to say about that, although it is big news. Uh, No, our final story this week is not analysis of the New Jersey Gaming Revenue Report, which has always been a story we've covered in past months. But nothing too crazy came out of the April numbers. And frankly, the takeaways and trends are becoming repetitive now. I mean, how many ways can we say sports betting is doing well in New Jersey because of mobile? Uh, So instead, for our final news story this week, let's take a quick look at the American Gaming Association announcing a new responsible marketing code for sports wagering. The AGA's code focuses on two main issues, marketing sports betting only to an audience that's of a legal gambling age and working a gamble responsibly type message, uh, ideally with problem gambling helpline information into every ad. To me, implied in this code is encouragement not to let sports betting advertising go down the same path as the infamous DFS advertising, where it was all about winning big and promising unlikely riches. The AGA is trying to get operators to focus on what's good for gamblers and the industry long term, uh, sort of the the marathon, not the sprint. Uh, John, how do you feel about the AGA celebrating the one year anniversary of the Supreme Court decision with this particular announcement? Well, Eric, anything that might get that guy who's constantly showing on my New Jersey airwaves, who claims to have won some huge jackpot from online casino gaming. Right. Uh, and then he says in the commercial, he bought a swimming pool with his winnings because I <laughs> guess he doesn't like money. But um, <laughs> for him not to be able to transfer his good fortune into building a backyard patio, too, thanks to sports betting. Um, well, uh, AGA is OK by me on this front. Uh, no, more seriously, I, I do like it. Um, I'd rather see commercials with groups socializing in a ball game in front of TVs. Both, they're celebrating and, and bemoaning a result, too. You know, maybe the latter better. It gets razzed a little bit because uh, it's okay because he didn't have bet he didn't bet the rent money anyway so um, everybody had fun is the point and mm-hmm. you know and as I've learned from reporting compulsive gamblers they didn't wait for pass to be overturned to be in the spot they're in um, the compulsion was already there so um, I'm not sure how many more compulsive gamblers we wind up with with this legalization although it's something to monitor uh, very seriously but um, and there's nothing wrong with having uh, you know sort of caution in, in some ads too because um, now that sports fans are dipping a toe and no not a 
into that guy's damn pool, but into sports <laughs> betting, you know, uh, I say stress, modest adrenaline rushes and stories to tell either way. You know, bad beat stories are amusing sort of when your bankroll isn't close to devastated from the result. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, they're calling it this responsible marketing code. Who, who can argue with responsible marketing? Uh, I think that's a, a solid term to go with. Uh, I think, you know, truth in advertising is a good thing. I think encouraging people to have fun betting sports and not to expect to get rich betting sports, that that's the way to go. Um, you shouldn't need a responsible marketing code to know not to advertise your sports book on the Disney Channel. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess you can't always trust these companies to do the right thing. So, you know, it's it's good to spell it out a bit, I suppose. But you're 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 Tinder. Are you good with that uh, Tinder ads? <laughs> right. There was there was that controversy uh, in, uh, in in Europe that William Hill ran commercials that not not commercials, but like a, a message that was sent straight to Tinder users. Uh, and uh, they were that advertising vehicle got banned. So, uh, yeah, probably probably would not be OK under the responsible marketing code here. Yeah, that sounds like going from one bad beat to another, frankly. <laughs> It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. With this week marking the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court deeming PASPA unconstitutional, thereby opening the door for state-by-state regulation of sports betting, we welcome to the show someone who has been sharing his insights on the legalization of sports betting throughout the whole process, someone who we were frankly overdue to have on the podcast, gaming law attorney and the co-founder of the University of New Hampshire Law Sports Wagering and Integrity Program, Daniel Wallach. Dan, welcome to Gamble On. Uh, thanks for having me on, Eric and John, and by no means is it overdue. I'm uh, flattered and honored that you would even have me on the podcast, uh, especially since after the Supreme Court decision, there's not a lot of legalization or uh, litigation uh, that I can talk about anymore. So my <laughs> career has kind of transitioned a little bit uh, now that there's no more Christie or Murphy case. <laughs> well, I think you're managing to hang on and stay relevant just fine. Uh, but we will uh, start by focusing on this anniversary of the Supreme Court decision. In these first 365 days of legal single game sports betting outside Nevada, what has surprised you as a legal expert? And what would you say has gone exactly as you anticipated it would? Uh, I think like many people who've been following the legislative uh, you know, path, I think many of us are surprised uh, by how difficult it's been to get some of the states uh, to be legalized. Um, last year, at the beginning of January, before the Supreme Court even announced its decision, there were, almost like this year, a number of, of bills that had been introduced in anticipation of the Supreme Court overruling or, or overturning PASPA. Very few of those made it to law. But this year, despite the recent uh, spate of uh, activity uh, with, some, with some bills, you know, making it all the way to the governor's desk, I'm still surprised that there haven't been more. And, and to me, New York has been especially confounding because mm-hmm. New York was the first state to, get, to gird up for the post-PASPA landscape. You know, while Mississippi and uh, Pennsylvania went with a, a, a legislative path in late 2017, New York had had the foresight and the prescience to enact a conditional law all the way back in 2013. They had a five-year head start on everybody else, and they're still not to market yet, largely because of the discussion and debate over how to expand it. 
beyond the four, you know, land-based casinos upstate and the issue of how the horse race tracks can participate and whether and to what extent there should be mobile wagering. That has confounded me to no end because New York State represents the most vibrant and, of course, the largest market for sports betting based on, you know, demographics, population size, the number of professional sports teams, uh, you name it, New York will be number one uh, by almost any metric. And despite the five-year head start, they're still not even to market yet. Yeah, Daniel, uh, obviously uh, uh, followers of me on Twitter and U.S. Bets and everything else know that I've been, uh, I've been uh, Debbie Downer on New York for a year now. And uh, people haven't always believed me, but I think they're starting to listen. But uh, one question for you, too, uh, Daniel, about, again, from the expertise of an attorney on this. What about this case that you find kind of the most confounding or unlikely when it played through the courts over a span of six years? Uh, uh, was there anything unique about this case, or was there anything not unique about this case? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one thing stood out in particular, uh, victory was basically rescued from the jaws of defeat so many times. I mean, I've been an appellate attorney for about uh, – I've been a litigator for 25 years and an appellate attorney for close to that amount of time. Think of all the miracles that had to play out here. This is like sort of the – uh, you know, like, that, like the Tennessee Titans, Buffalo Bills game down 35 to three. Look at what transpired in the Christie case. You had um, seven losses uh, hung on the uh, New Jersey, you know, back, and ultimately they won. But they had to go through rehearing on bonk, which is almost never granted in the Third Circuit. Uh, you know, hundreds of petitions filed every year, and maybe one or two granted. So New Jersey pulled that out of the hat, uh, and, and eventually lost that on rehearing. And on certs, which is almost, you know, just as rarely granted less than 1% of all petitions, New Jersey had a, had a worse issue potentially than the first time around, which was focused more on the federalism component. New Jersey had been a repeat customer before the Supreme Court, had its first petition turned down in 2014. And there were certainly new wrinkles to the case, but the fact that New Jersey kind of came out from the ashes of, of defeat and had almost no life and were and was essentially resuscitated uh, on several occasions with, through the rehearing and through the cert grant. I think is a really unusual daily double in some of the cases, the the, the, the the important cases that I've followed over the year. I can't think of another case that has had that kind of trajectory with loss after loss after loss after loss, rehearing on bank, Supreme Court cert grant, and then they're the last one standing. Uh, I mean, you don't need to have a 500 record to make the Hall of Fame. I think winning one time is enough, so long as that one time is before the highest court in the land. And that's what was so unjust about this case—that yeah. the state was left for dead at so many different junctures. Right. I, I, I want to get you on one more legal uh, point. Follow-up, Daniel. Um, yeah, one thing I learned about this case over the years is that all sides agree uh, that. Congress could have passed a law in 1992 that not only could have banned sports betting in all 50 states, but they also could have picked a law that said, you know what, Nevada gets to keep their sports betting, the other states don't, and that's not unequal sovereignty, we learned. So, so, so why didn't they pass a smarter law, and, and how could they have done it? What's the difference so, to, to a layman? Well, I mean, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking is very easy in this game. But to go back 25 years, we could also ask, why didn't New Jersey take advantage of the one-year window it had under the PASPA exemption? There's a lot of what-ifs. And certainly uh, the leagues could probably be asking themselves, well, maybe they could have settled the case with New Jersey and, and limited the uh, you know, growth of state-sponsored gambling to at least one state, for, to just one state for at least the foreseeable future. Why didn't, this, why didn't the leagues and, and, and some of the other members of Congress look for a total prohibition on gambling with the exception of you know, Nevada? I think in retrospect, uh, their, their perception of the 
downside legal risks was very short-sighted and honestly it took 25 years i mean it's very easy very easy to relitigate the case 25 years later but that was the most salient political compromise at the time and there had been no challenges to that law for nearly a quarter of a century Hearing you talk uh, about uh, having to absorb a bunch of losses before the one big win and having to wait a long time and be very patient, uh, it just uh, makes me tap into my, my inner 76ers fan and, and say, trust the process. That, I think that's what we had here. Yeah, or if you're old enough, you might remember the New York Islander dynasty before they ran the table with four Stanley Cups. They had a string of successive playoff disappointments. I mean, now I'm showing my age, 75, (laughs) 76, 77, 78, 79. I'm not an Islanders fan, but before the dynasty, they, they, they were sort of bridesmaids for five years in a row. And, you know, sometimes you're the Buffalo Bills. Right. And you don't turn the corner. Or in New Jersey, and someone like Dennis Drazen and Ray Lesniak that had that stick to itiveness where they never gave up. And eventually, one way or the other, they would have won this case because I, I, I believe that Dennis and the, and, and the New Jersey legislature were prepared to go that nuclear option and have a complete repeal of PASPA, if that, a complete repeal of the state sports gambling prohibitions directed to sports betting. I think that was certainly uh, not just uh, an idle threat, but it was something that Dennis was certainly prepared to put all of his political capital behind. Right. So last week on the podcast, we interviewed poker pro Bernard Lee, and he said that for online poker, the three major states that could be game changers are California, New York, and your home state, Florida. Uh, Those are also very interesting states for sports betting. Uh, You just talked uh, about New York already earlier in the interview. Uh, We know that land-based betting is coming there, but that alone will have minimal impact. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about each of those three states passing new sports betting laws in the next couple of years? Well, I think the one common thread between uh, California, New York, and Florida is that there is a constitutional dimension to whatever they want to do in the online gaming or sports betting space. Um, In California, the tribes, I believe, have um, uh, a leg up and almost exclusivity in the area of class three gaming. And it would require a constitutional uh, amendment by way of a voter referendum to bring online gaming or sports betting to Florida, to California, unless it's granted exclusively to the, to the tribes in California. Florida has a similar impediment in that there's a, a not only a seminal tribe compact that confers exclusivity to the tribe over most forms of class three gaming, but also there is a constitutional dimension in that the voters of Florida passed Amendment 3 in November, which took the issue of casino gambling expansion and placed it exclusively under voter control. Now, I'm of the opinion that sports betting falls outside of the ambit of that ballot question, but online casino gaming doesn't. So I think uh, Florida is probably the least likely of the three states to have a true gaming environment, mainly because of the legal and tribal impediments not to mention Governor DeSantis's opposition uh, to online gaming, although he may make an exception for that in the case of sports betting. I think it's I think iGaming along the lines of the New Jersey environment is more likely to occur in New York among those three possibilities because New York's constitution is exactly like New Jersey's constitution in that it confines casino gambling to very specific locations. In New Jersey, it's it's Atlantic City. 
In New York, it's up to seven casino facilities. And what New Jersey did to activate iGaming was not amend the Constitution one more time. They um, authorized it legislatively under the premise that all of the bets are accepted at the casino server located in Atlantic City. New York could pass a similar iGaming law, which uh, dictates that the bets are accepted at the seven casinos where the servers are located. So New York is most likely uh, to follow New Jersey's path, given the very close parallels between the two states' constitutions. And of course, the proximity of New, York, of New Jersey to New York, I think, is a, uh, is a test case that looms or is on, many, uh, on the minds of many New York lawmakers as an example that they may wish to emulate. Yeah, and Eric, I'll uh, throw in that I would say none of those three states have sports betting in the next three years, uh, to the chagrin of uh, millions of people in those states. That's well, mobile, you mean mobile. I mean, New York. Mobile, right. The land okay. sports betting. Oh, right, right. Uh, yeah. I, I would say. Well, in, in the middle of nowhere, yes. I'll <laughs> agree with you. For sure in California, I would say Florida is like 2080 uh, possibility, but I believe in New York State there will be mobile sports betting statewide within the next three years. Certainly, okay. it's either going to happen this session or next session, or they'll put it on the ballot. Uh, I don't think it will languish in, you know, sort of hyperspace forever because there's too much upside being left to New Jersey and now Massachusetts, which are along the New York border. I think at some point Governor Cuomo is going to uh, acquiesce and um, there'll be a bill uh, to authorize mobile sports betting. If not this session, then they'll, they'll, get, it, they'll get it ramped up next year. We might have a side bet after this program. <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wrapping up then, you know, uh, how, how did you wind up here? Obviously, uh, uh, you know, I think I know you're from Long Island and that you're a, we're a big sports fan. But, uh, it, yeah, how do you get from there to here? You're all in on sports law, gaming law and all that. It's all you, John. <laughs> in 2013 or late. No, I'm sorry. In 2012, early 2013, I was an appellate attorney uh, litigating. I was a partner at a Florida based law firm and I was handling some gaming cases, uh, litigation matters involving racetracks. And I started a blog. But uh, the blog was really, you know, just languishing for a couple of weeks until I latched on to the New Jersey sports betting case. And I began to uh, write updates about the various, uh, you know, case filings in the Christie one case, but I wouldn't even do them in my own name. I initially wrote the posts about the New Jersey sports betting case in the name of another lawyer in my law firm whose name was the title of the blog. So I was basically a script, a scrivener and a ghostwriter. And I send this stuff to John at the Bergen record and John posts it in the name of this other attorney being quoted that there'll be a decision in Christie one by Memorial day or by labor day. And then one of my partners came to me and said, Dan, are you an idiot? What is wrong with you? You're putting in all this hard work. You might as well put your own name on it. These are your ideas. And then I started to do that, and it caught a little bit of an audience. And I would say the three people or four people I'm most grateful for to my, for my ascension in this space is John, uh, primarily, initially, for giving me sort of an airing of my, of my uh, insights on the case, because he, he linked to so many of my blog posts, and to a lesser extent, Tony Bad at Gambling Compliance. And then in 2014, Michael McCann of Sports Illustrated, uh, and I, you know, met and he encouraged me to uh, be more active in the space. He quoted me in a few of his Sports Illustrated articles. And I said, I like this. I'm going to do a little bit more. And I think having 
uh, professionals like John and Michael McCann, you know, kind of validate some of the early work that I was doing, gave me, you know, sort of a 51-year-old guy who's never been in the space the confidence to do more. And I went from somebody who's never spoken in a public environment. I've done, I've now done close to 100, you know, industry panels. Prior to 2014, uh, the total was goose eggs, zero. I mean, I argued in appellate courts and everything, but I was not in sports. I was not really in a public gambling, you know, space. And by virtue of the Christie case and the support of people like John, Mike McCann, and Gabe Feldman, I just said, "Man, this is this is like intoxicating." And I just I just went full steam ahead. And luckily, you know, the the work speaks for itself. And I think I've done a pretty good job in uh, trying to shed some light on the legal issues. I'm pretty opinionated, and I, and I care a lot about the space and a lot about the environment. So I think it was just a natural evolution. But I stand, I stood on the shoulders of giants like John Brennan back in 2013. <laughs> and you know, but for his you know early support, I might have just packed it in and and just given up on it. I mean, who who knows? But certainly having mentors or people believing in you, no matter what profession you find yourself in, is always helpful to, to continue to give you encouragement to stay the course. I mean, I had no grand vision or, or business plan here. This is not something that was part of a Machiavellian scheme to you know, get into sports betting law. It just evolved. But early support from some key people in the, in, in the industry who I viewed as influential and who I respected meant a great deal to me and probably kept me on the path that I'm on. All right, I, I have to break from the standard interview format now and ask my co-host, John, a question. Did you know he was going to give you the credit, John, and that's why you asked him that question? Uh, no, I was thinking more of like uh, how he got into law school and how uh, he got on his way and how he picked uh, sports law and gaming law, but uh, but I'll take it. We can delete all of that if you want. No, it's uh, it's great. I just thought maybe if the, if anyone was uh, behind a Machiavellian scheme that maybe maybe it was John there, but I guess not. Well, well, well there was some payment and consideration involved uh, before the broadcast. So um, you know, we, you know, unbeknownst to the audience, we we had a little bit of a side deal. Look, I'm lucky we even got into I even got into law school to be quite honest. I was not the greatest undergraduate student. I applied to 10 law schools, got into one, which was my alma mater, my undergraduate school, Hofstra University. So I batted 100 in law school applications. And I think they took pity on me because my parents and, and myself, we spent so much money on the undergraduate education. And I was halfway towards an MBA that I think, okay, let's just let this guy in. He's given us enough money. And once I was in law school, I, I really excelled academically because I was somebody who could write. And I love explaining my positions, and that lent itself very well to the law school exam model of it doesn't matter what the correct answer is, it's how you arrive at the conclusion and, and, and how supportable your analysis is. I was terrible at multiple choice questions, uh, which is your typical college you know, exam situation, and I was like a B-plus, B-minus student, and I got rejected by every law school. So my, uh, my standing here today is probably even a longer shot than New Jersey winning the sports betting case. I had many more obstacles thrown in my way, and Ted Olson was not in my corner. Well, that's bringing it all back home. That's quite yes. which circle and square there. <laughs> well done. Sometimes uh, the, best, the best shows are unscripted. I mean, it just sort of uh, I've been having some fun uh, chatting with, uh, with you and John, and, um, you know, it's, you're the first uh, you know, hosts who wanted to talk about how I got started. So it, it brought me back to the very beginning. 
Great. Well, yeah, you've uh, you, you you've done uh, you've done okay for yourself uh, from those humble beginnings. So, uh, and it's real it's really been a pleasure talking to you, Dan. Uh, a note to our listeners that you you guys can and should follow Dan on Twitter at Wallach Legal. Uh, so, Dan, uh, a happy Paspa anniversary to you, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Happy anniversary to you and to John. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, my parents today, and uh, I wish you guys a, a lot of success uh, going forward i listened to your podcast you've had some great guests i don't know why you had me on but but i'll take it uh but uh and it's just been nice interacting with you over the past you know many months and i look forward to continued conversations with both of you all right thanks Dan. two men ten thousand dollars will they run it up or blow it all it's time to check in on the gamble on bankroll It was a pretty lousy week for our bankroll, and it's all because of Warriors-Rockets Game 6. John, we have to admit it. We have to own it. We were the squares. Uh, the sportsbooks figured the public would love the Rockets at home against the Durantless Warriors. A lot of the Sharps sniffed it out, uh, but you and I were on the wrong side of this, and it cost us not one, not two, but three bets. Uh, I yeah, that had... was that was uh, that was bad. Yeah, that was uh, that was lame. That was amateur. <laughs> it that really was. was. That was rough. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Well, I had Houston on the money line at minus two thirty, uh, so that's two hundred thirty dollars up in smoke. Uh, you had them to cover the seven and a half point spread, so there goes another hundred ten dollars. And our dreams of cashing a plus fifteen hundred championship ticket on the Rockets also died with that loss. So that's another $50 gone. Uh, But at least we have one piece of good news. Uh, You bet on the Bruins to win their series against Carolina, and we're up 3-0 there. Uh, But uh, please uh, don't bet on the Bruins again in the Stanley Cup Finals, assuming they get there. I don't want to jinx our bet, but assuming they get there, I don't want to be rooting for a Boston championship of any kind. Can you promise me that, or, or does the bankroll take priority? Uh, we'll get to the Bruins in a bit, Eric. Oh, all right. Um, so uh, anyway, until that uh, Bruins bet uh, hopefully comes in, for now, we lost $390 for the week. Uh, we're now up by a mere $331, and we have $1,095 on hold in futures bets, leaving us with $9,236 available to bet. And you're up first, John. Uh, well, Eric, you know, for once I have some direct knowledge uh, of a, a major championship golf course uh, ahead of the major. Um, back in the day, my posse and I used to make a pilgrimage to the Bethpage Black Course on Long Island, the site of this weekend's PGA Championship on a sunny summer day of at least 90 degrees. Um, no golf carts allowed on the course until John Daly waved his 88 card this week. No kidding. <laughs> right. And he's playing with one. But uh, he, back then, even for amateurs. Um, so, of course, you know, you play from the back tees because um, the course is brutal. Had the, the toughest uh uh, course rating in the entire Tri-State area, which is why we'd leave at 3 o'clock in the morning to wait around for three hours to play. Uh, by the way, after the ninth hole, you don't cozy up near the clubhouse. You're a couple of miles from home at that point, my friend. Um, on this course, you're in for a dime, in for a dollar, or whatever they call it in 2019 money. But uh, So all that said, everyone seems to know that it's a wicked long course. Uh, just because it's not going to be U.S. Open brutal doesn't mean you can fire away at will, though. Um, you know, the rough will be there. It won't be U.S. Open, but it'll be there. Uh, you, so you need to be long and accurate. So who is tops in the tour and strokes gained off the tee? Who's the tops in the tour in strokes gained tee to green? That's your winner, Rory McIlroy. Um, but at only 10 to 1, well, I'll go um, 
thirty dollars to win three hundred there, and also a hundred to win one hundred and sixty-five on a mere top twenty. Uh, Rory sometimes it's a rough first round, so that bet keeps my hope alive, just in case. So uh, you used to have a posse, huh? I didn't. Uh, I, well, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed. Figured you for a posse guy. Well, we we didn't call it that back then, but I'm trying to trying to retrofit. Okay. <laughs> um, and and for the record, uh, for our listeners, uh, John got this bet in uh, before Rory teed off. Whenever time you might be listening to this, uh, this is a this is a, a clean bet uh, pr- prior to McElroy uh, starting up his tournament. So. Yeah, and the way he usually plays in the first round, it'll probably be obvious. <laughs> All right, I am going to hit you with, with a series of numbers, John. Here they are: nine, eight, four. Nine, nine, fourteen, four. Uh, those are the margins by which the Golden State Warriors have led at the end of the first quarter of each home game so far this postseason. They have not trailed at the end of the opening quarter once in seven home games. And not just that, but the, the fewest points they've led by is four. And on average, they've led by eight points. Uh, so tonight, Thursday night, uh, in game two against the Blazers, the first quarter spread is a mere two and a half points. Uh, with or without Kevin Durant, the Warriors are a team that starts hot that does well when its starters are on the floor. Let's bet $110 to win 100 that they're up by three points or more at the end of the first quarter tonight at Oracle Arena. All right, that, those numbers sound pretty good. Um, now, the Bruins, um, as I tweeted on Tuesday night at my hotel bar in Boston, minutes before the NBA draft lottery, I asked if one of the four screens could go to that maybe. Um, now it's Bruins, 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 yeah. Bruins. <laughs> Not even the Sox, who were bounced from view about an hour into their game that night. So I went up to the hotel room, and uh, otherwise I watched the Bruins game basically that night. And uh, uh, I, I'm going to go 120 to win 100 to win game four Thursday and make it a sweep. Um, Low-scoring hockey playoffs, the road game makes it a challenge. That crowd is going to be into it early, but um, I think the Bruins get the first goal, and, and that could just about seal it. And by the way, no guarantees about the cup finals, but no sentimentality in favor of the Bruins either after I get my third straight uh, series win here. It, it's not personal. It's just business. <laughs> there you go. Good Godfather reference. Uh, yeah, you've been riding the Bruins pretty darn successfully so far, but uh, at least the Celtics are out, so uh, so you're not betting on a possible uh, Boston slam. At least at least uh, that that's off the table. Yeah, um, for our final bet this week, uh, I will be in Brooklyn this Saturday. Saturday night for the heavyweight showdown on Showtime between Titleist Deontay Wilder and Dominic Brazil, a meeting of two former U.S. Olympians, a fun fight, uh, but a fight I'm about 90% sure that I know how it's going to end. Deontay Wilder is a once or twice in a generation natural puncher. He has 39 knockouts in 41 fights. He's wild and sloppy, yes, uh, but he's a level or two above Brazil, and Brazil's chin is not so good that I have any realistic reason to believe he'll stay in there for all 12 rounds. I'm betting the chalk pick here because the odds just aren't wide enough to discourage me. Wilder by KO is minus 200 on bet stars, so let's risk $200 to win $100 that Deontay Wilder wins inside the distance. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks again to our guest, Daniel Wallach. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please do the honors and take us out. Uh, we'll do, Eric. Um, you know, in an unexpected development, I give kind of props to Newark Liberty Airport. It's got a user-friendly lost and found page online, I, I noticed. Um, it's easy to fill out. The response says, in part, we're sorry to hear that you've lost personal property during your trip. There are no fees or charges to file a report. You'll only be charged shipping and handling fees if you'd like to have your property returned to you. Then there's a tracker each day that uh, kind of like you 
what you'd get if you ordered something from from Amazon. Um, now, the odds of my cell phone coming back are slim and none, and yep. none quickly left town with my <laughs> smartphone. Uh, but the helpful messages, they're, they're, really, they're really good as part of the, the grieving process. So uh, with that said, until next time, gamble on, everybody, and make sure to keep track of your damn phone. <laughs> <laughs>